The musical comes back on, the last note rings out, and the superintendent starts talking about musicals. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We're delighted to have you back in to listen in on another great conversation about another great script. Yeah, we're still in the glow of starting a new season afresh, which is great. Uh, excited to be jumping into some new conversations after a bit of a break. So thanks for tuning in and uh, tuning into the conversation around what is just a fun show. Um, uh, we're we're, we're uh, taking a taking a turn into Musicalville for uh, this episode and talking about the drowsy chaperone today. That's right. The Drowsy Chaperone is one of those titles a lot of people know offhand. They recognize it. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. There's not a ton of recent productions of the show for reasons that I'm sure we will talk about. Uh, music and lyrics by Lisa Lambert and Greg Morrison. Book by Bob Martin and Don McKellar. Uh, if it's a name that you recognize, then I think you will find this conversation about the script interesting. If this is not a name you recognize, you're going to want to check it out. Find a way to read the <laughs> script, watch a production online, because this is the kind of show that's a little going to... It's going to be hard for Jackson and I to capture the tone of it. We've discovered this with especially big comedies that like the conversational format doesn't necessarily capture the sort of wild, funny comic timing that makes the show what it is. Yeah, yeah, there's there's certainly a difference between the even in the reading of it and then like watching a couple scenes of it, it completely changes how how the tone goes and the sort of experience that you have in the theater of seeing this show, which is a very self-aware show, which I'm sure we'll get into. So there's a whole tone that comes with this show that is just that I agree with you. It's going to be like maybe it's perhaps difficult to capture in the in the uns if you haven't been a part of it or seen it or at least listen to the music of it. Yeah, as I was getting ready to do this podcast, I was thinking like, wow, for the first two episodes of the season, these are pretty different shows. And that's true. Fat yeah. Ham, which we talked about last week, is quite different than The Drowsy Chaperone in a lot of ways. But we've got this sort of early pairing of satires and, and certainly uh, the satirical elements of Fat Ham and the satirical elements of Drowsy Chaperone are both prominent features of what they are and what they're trying to do. Yeah, you yeah, you, you kind of have to engage this play with the knowledge that there's like some critique going on, some some uh yeah, some absolutely some satire, a lot of satire and uh, all mixed in what is just like a really like like just happy tracks of music <laughs> and people singing and things like uh, uh, you know just this these these uh, big bursting numbers. It, it's a it's a it's it's gonna. I, I'm excited for the conversation and trying to kind of find the way that we can talk about this this play with those uh, two things in mind: the sort of satire amidst the reverie of this play. Yeah, well, and of course, the fascinating kind of framing structure that really makes Drowsy Chaperone work in whatever degree that you think it works. It's right. all dependent on the way that the play is narrated, the structure within which we are all kind of living into how we experience the show, which we'll talk about when we get to the synopsis. But it's it's such a crucial element of the musical. The musical is not really... It, it's interesting. I don't know what you'll talk about in the context, but as I was reading up on why the musical was developed, the idea for this kind of satirical musical existed before the narrated the, the narrative framework existed and it's yeah. sort of hard for me to imagine the two things separately i mean i know that they were historically i guess but the the narrative framework is so crucial to how i experience the satire of the musical that it's hard for me to pull those apart yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I'll talk about it a little bit in the context, but it is interesting to to kind of 
think about like when this this play was originally made for Friends and then was performed at at a Toronto Fringe Festival. So it was a very in group, a group of people who would who would get the satire. But then I think the move to a more uh, more uh, broadly uh, accepting or bro broader community of people watching it, you you need that like, by the way, you need this, you need this framework to say, by the way, just to be clear, I'm commenting on this. <laughs> yeah, so, totally, right? Because like, yeah. at some points you really need the narrator to say, by the way, this isn't racist. <laughs> We're making <laughs> is, fun we know, of the racism. And, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. it, it is racist in the sense that what we're satirizing is racist, and and yeah. that I mean, I, I do. You're, I think you're exactly right to track like when it was for a smaller group that already understood that it could be one thing, but with the sort of broader audience for the show, having the narrator character to say, just so everybody knows. <laughs> We're making right. fun of this. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> well, yeah, what, a, we got a, a lot more conversation. It, it, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we got a lot more conversation to have. Sounds like we were excited to dive in. Before we get there, hey, just to point everybody over to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash podcast. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Over there, you can become a supporter of the show. It's really the primary way that we make No Script run. At this point in the life of No Script, you know, the episode's not being interrupted by ads that we've inserted to fund. We're not reading copy or anything like that. The way that we make No Script work as a program is that the listeners decide that it's valuable enough to them to want to support with a small financial contribution every month. And so that's how our Patreon works. You head over there, you can sign up for a tier of support. The lowest tier is a dollar a month. We think that's a very affordable amount. It's hugely helpful. So please consider at least that level. We like to say, we've said over our, you know, now 10 seasons that we think everybody can afford $12 a year, generally speaking. And that if we, a lot of the folks that we know are listeners, if we just ask you for $12, you'd hand it over without thinking about it. So this is the ask. Head over to Patreon. Consider that $1 a month level. Really, without that financial support, no script could not exist in the way that it does. It costs money to run a podcast. It's a fairly significant time investment. We just couldn't make it happen without the folks that are supporting us on Patreon. If that's you, if you're a supporter, huge thank you to you. Uh, you are making the show run. And today we have a, an exciting thing that we get to do every once in a while. We, if you sign up to be a supporter at the playwright tier or higher, we want to give you a special shout out on the show. So in today's episode, we are thanking Robin Anderson, who just joined as uh, somebody at the playwright tier. So thank you, Robin. We're excited to have you as a supporter at that level as we kind of look at the notifications we got. Robin was a supporter at a different level and then raised that amount of support to the playwright level. So that is an incredible gift from her to have been a supporter already and to choose to make that kind of contribution to making no script work we're grateful for robin we're grateful for everybody who is supporting no script on patreon thank you thank you thank you if that's not you yet patreon.com slash no script podcast yes thank you all so much to our patrons to everyone who's checked us out over there we will see you over there and now back to the script. Here we go. We're going to jump in, talk a little bit about the context of this play, as we've already mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but I'll try to flesh it out a little bit for us. Um, uh, this this play uh, is music and lyrics by Lisa Lambert and Greg Morrison, and then the book by Bob Martin and Don McKellar in its final form. That's the crew that put it together. Um, however, this play started as kind of a spoof play, uh, a play as a gift to Bob Martin and Janet Vandegraaff as like their stag party. Um, and so it was a play that was written by Don McKellar, Lisa Lam Lambert, and Greg Morrison, had a spoof of a bunch of old musicals, and uh, just a, a kind of, a, a, you know, you get the sense that it's kind of this irreverent, fun play that they all put on together of... Of um, of of all these musicals kind of jammed together. The main character of the play, of uh, the final version of the play, is or not the main character, but the um, the the woman getting married is Janet Vandegraaff. <laughs> so um, that's that's where the <laughs> where the name comes from. Um, 
but then uh, the play was kind of kind of continued to uh, be developed by them, and eventually Bob Martin jumped in with the folks who originally wrote it and kind of helped craft out uh, what the play became. Um, at, and I, I misspoke just barely five minutes ago or whatever. When it arrived at the Toronto Fringe Festival, Martin became a co-writer and he 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 created the character of Man in the Chair for the Toronto Fringe Festival. So right at that moment when it kind of broadened out its audience, <laughs> Man in the Chair was invented. Um, that that uh, production uh, after the fringe staging, it uh, 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 had a had a production at the theater Pass Morale in 1999. Um, that's uh, still in Toronto and it's in French, so forgive me for my fr French pronunciation. Um, but uh, had had reasonable success and kind of slowly was shown to more and more producers, had more and more productions, um, and eventually found its way to Broadway in May of uh, 2006, which is like nine-ish years after, you know, the first time it would have been performed for that stag party. It opened on Broadway with um, uh, Bob Martin in the role of Man in the Chair, um, which is kind of fun. Uh, that production won a bunch of awards, a pretty, pretty, uh, uh, was nominated for teens of awards and won five or six of them, I believe, Tony Awards, also a bunch of Drama Desk Awards. Um, that, that production also starred a couple names that you would know, uh, Sutton Foster in the role of Janet Van de Graaff, um, who, who recently just had, uh, was on, was on Broadway as Marion in Music Man. Um, so, so, uh, well-known actors, uh, come through this role. Beth Leval played the drowsy chaperone, the, the, the title character. Um, and um, eventually won won the Tony for that for that performance. You also uh, eventually so Bob Martin was in this play for in the role of Man in the Chair for a long time, both on the original Broadway cast recording and the subsequent tours. Um, but also like Bob Saget jumped into the role. Um, lots lots of like the when it hit the Australian tour, Jeffrey Rush was in the role of Man in the Chair. So quite a few uh, uh, well known actors have uh, taken their crack at this play. Um, that production, uh, the, the Broadway production, ran for 674 performances and, and wrapped up in December of 2007, so a little over a year. It then had a West End run, the North American tour. Um, there was also the Australian tour that I just talked about. Um, yeah, well, and I just want to jump in quickly just to say I was talking with Jackson about this before the recording. Uh, some of you out there may have seen this show. I know that I have. It's commonly done at colleges and community theaters, summer stock theaters, those kinds of places right now. I could not for the life of me remember the theater where I saw it at. So if somebody out there, I know there's a lot of folks that listen that know us, knows where I saw this show, reach out and tell me because I would be interested in remembering. I distinctly remember the look of the theater. I remember what the production looked like. I remember the performance by the actor playing Man and Cher was very strong. I remember some unique details of the casting, but I cannot remember where I saw it. So, hey, if yeah. you're out there and you know where I saw this show, send, shoot us an email, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me personally. You will help me with this weird memory block I have. Right. <laughs> it is one of those shows that like you see and it's charming and and and, and you, it stands out in your mind. Um, and that's kind of what you uh, see in some of the reviews of the show as well. You see like uh, the, the New York Times review that I read um, was, was like, this show was just like somehow it pulled me into it or pulls audiences into it he, he, like, just like this kind of like air of like you know there are some things about it that i'm not really sure about but for some reason maybe it's the timing maybe it's the content maybe whatever audiences love it and it kind of sucks you into it so it's it's a great show as as jacob said it's done quite frequently or has been done quite frequently in colleges uh um it's also it's and 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 yeah it just kind of continues great cast you know uh, bombastic characters to kind of worm your way into. So, so yeah, that's kind of the journey that it's been on so far up until, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's had, it's had a life. And again, we talked about at the beginning of the intro that, uh, it's it's a title I think a lot of people know offhand, even if they may not right away be able to pull up what it's about or anything like that. It feels like I think it's it's aptly titled in that the title feels like what it is. I mean, I think you you have a sort of sense of the world even when you hear yeah. the title out loud. Um, so the show is really two shows, let's say. Um, I'm just going to try to talk about one and then the other. I'm going to talk about the play within the play and then the play itself. 
uh, so that you all, I think we'll all be on the same page. And I'll just try to do this in a kind of broad overview because this is, let's just say it's not a plot uh, centric show. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the, the plot is not incredibly intricate. It's not designed to be incredibly surprising. It is not. It, it is not driven by the actual events of the story. So let me just cover those quickly. The musical uh, that is within the broader musical is a. It's a fake Broadway show that was invented for the purposes of this musical called The Drowsy chaperone. I'll talk about the framing element more in a minute, but just so you have a sense of the beginning, we are basically with the man in the chair, who's a character we are listening to, and then it sort of comes to life for us to witness. An old musical is the is the claim called The Drowsy Chaperone from the 1920s, and the man in the chair narrates us through parts of the action, and then we, we watch the musical. So that this is the musical within the musical. The Drowsy Chaperone musical that we as the audience are listening to alongside the man in the chair is about a wedding weekend. A whole wedding party arrives at the wedding venue and the folks that are getting married are Robert and Janet. And they have not known each other for very long. Janet is a famous stage actress. She's in the Follies. And Robert is a son of an oil tycoon. And they met on a cruise ship and decided to get married. Janet is going to give up her stage career to marry Robert. Uh, other folks that are there, Mrs. Tottendale is the wedding venue hostess in some way. She's got a couple of like worker bees that float around with her. Uh, there's also George, Robert's best man. There is uh, the drowsy chaperone herself, who is Janet's uh, chaperone, sort of lady that follows her around and travels with her. Uh, there is uh, Mr. Feldzig, who is Janet's like producer, basically. He runs the show that she is in. Uh, he has a, another woman who travels with him, who's another performer of some sort, uh, named Kitty. There is a random interloper who we don't know where he comes from, but his name is Adolfo, and he features prominently later in the play. There is also a series of gangsters who are there uh, basically to threaten Mr. Feldzig, the, their boss, a gangster, I guess, put a bunch of is a, is an investor in the show that Janet is the star and, and Feldzig is producing. Uh, and then there is also an aviatrix a pilot named Trix who only features uh, in the very end of the play. In general, this is kind of what happens. Uh, Janet and Robert are told that they cannot see each other on their wedding day. Uh, and so the drowsy chaperone and George the best man are sort of designated to make sure that they don't see each other on this day. And the man in chair narrating and providing his sly commentary says something like, pay attention to that because yes, that's pretty much the whole plot. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the, the complicating action that occurs between them is that Janet is you know, sort of torn on whether she should give up her stage career to marry Robert. Does he really love her? So the drowsy chaperone says, well, why don't you... She just go ask him. And so she goes out. Robert is wearing a blindfold because of some hilarious hijinks earlier in the play. She goes out into the garden, sees Robert in a blindfold, decides to pretend to be someone else. And as someone else, uh, they basically, Robert describes how they met and fell in love. And then in the passion of the moment, ends up kissing her because they're singing the same duet that they sung back then. So there's some confusion. Uh, and Janet says, wait a minute, you thought I was someone else when you kissed me. The wedding's off. Uh, and then, of course, by the end of the play, that is resolved and they do end up getting married. So that's the sort of center through line for them. Also going on, Mr. Feldzig knows that if he loses Janet as his star actor, that the show will probably crash. So he is around to try to convince her not to get married. Uh, Kitty, who is that gal that follows him around, she thinks she could be the leading star in Janet's place. So she spends the musical trying to convince Mr. Feldzig to let her be the star. The gangsters are there to threaten Mr. Feldzig not not to lose Janet because then the investment will sink and they're going to like beat him up. 
Uh, also going on is uh, Mrs. Mrs. Tottendale sort of falls in love with one of her worker bees around the, the place. Um, as a strategy to prevent Janet from getting married, Mr. Feldzeek uh, encourages uh, Aldolfo, who's like a European guy, to seduce her because he's like a big romantic kind of guy. And he should go seduce the bride in order to prevent her from getting married. In a crazy hijink mix-up, he actually ends up seducing the drowsy chaperone instead. Uh, and they get married by the end of the play. Mr. Feldzeek and Kitty end up getting married by some trickery of Kitty's. By the end of the play, Mrs. Tottendale and one of her worker bees, they get married. They fall in love and get married by the end of the play. But at the very end of the musical, we discover that George, the best man, has forgotten to hire the minister. But right at that moment, the aviatrix, the pilot, tricks her plane crashes into the scene. And they say, well, you know, the captain of a ship could marry people and a plane is kind of like a ship. So what if we all get on the plane and we go to Rio and on the way, Trix has the ability to marry us and then we'll do our honeymoon in Rio. And that's how the musical within the musical ends. So that's the musical that we're listening to slash watching along with the man in the chair. And the man in the chair, as we've said, is what makes this kind of crazy, hijinks, silly musical interesting. He is, uh, for some reason that we sort of discover as he narrates us through, alone in the world. Um, he doesn't go out he doesn't see people. He is suffering from, as he describes at the beginning of the play, uh, feeling a little blue, a little sad, a little self-conscious anxiety resulting in nonspecific sadness, a state I call blue, is how he describes himself at the beginning of the play. So to get over this, he puts on an old record to listen to and talk us through, which is, of course, The Drowsy Chaperone. Across the course of the play, there's many interruptions. The phone rings uh, many times, and he says, don't answer, don't answer, just ignore it. It'll stop ringing eventually. Eventually, he pulls the phone out of the wall. He talks about uh, losing love, that is, his marriage fell apart, we learn at one point in the play. Oh, very late in the play, we learn that his father left him when he was a kid. And very late in the play, uh, the power goes out, and someone starts knocking on the door, and he's frightened. He won't go to the door. He doesn't know what to do until eventually it's the superintendent who's come to fix the power and does. And the superintendent uh, reveals that that they are also a Broadway lover. But the, but the man in the chair just kind of sends him out the door. So for whatever reason, this character is kind of a loner, kind of a hermit, uh, seems to be sort of scared of the outside world and lives vicariously through these big old style Broadway recordings that he listens to on album. And so that's the framing device. This is the character who interprets the world of the play for us, who provides commentary like, yeah, that was pretty racist when they did that back then, who provides commentary like, yeah, this plot line is kind of stupid, who, but it also provides commentary, but like, uh, yeah, this song isn't great lyrically, but boy, the music really just sweeps you off your feet. So as a general overview, that's kind of what happens in The Drowsy Chaperone, the musical that is about the musical, The Drowsy Chaperone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> it's definitely got like uh, play within the play vibes um, and very like self-aware um, uh, uh, characters, at least at least the character of the man in the chair. Um, certainly the, like the way you did, you decide to act the different characters in the musical is up to the actors, but I think it's written in a little bit campy, you know, like, you know, you know what you're going through, but man in the chair, like starts the play with this, this monologue about like, like what he prays for when he goes to theater and it's like short plays and please no fourth wall breaking. And then immediately breaks the fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I like the first line of the show. We're all sitting in darkness. And this is why it was important that I saw it, because it is it's very visceral. The, the narrative stuff really works well live. We're all sitting in darkness waiting for the show to start. And the man in the chair, the first line is, I hate theater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right away, you're teed up to be like, oh, boy, here we go. Um, you, you got the uh, you, have, you have the character talking directly to you, kind of experiencing something with you, which is just a really I, we, we, we kind of let's jump into the, what we were kind of teasing at the beginning is is a big, like significant part of why this musical works is this sort of framing device and the, the experience of 
seeing someone who loves this play experience and talk about it with you and, and notice all it's all it's like all of his quibbles with it while still noticing how it makes him feel and how it how it kind of uh, hits him in this moment when he when he admits that he's feeling rather blue. Yeah, it's interesting because it it kind of becomes in some ways like a musical, like the the whole musical, not the musical within the musical, but the whole experience becomes like a kind of commentary on escapism. Yeah. It, it, I mean, he really describes the reason why he loves listening to these old albums is it is escapist. It takes him out of his present condition into this big world of rich people and crazy hijinks and beautiful music. There are so many lines throughout the play that's something to the effect of like, uh, oh, actually, here here's a great one. Um, he says, uh, there's another thing I love about musicals. When a character is in crisis, they sing and dance, which is so much more interesting than just whining about it. But that's the glory of musical theater. And so it's it's all about how he's lifted into this glamour glitz world of the stage out of where he's at. And by virtue of the fact that we learn where he's at over the course of the play, it's kind of an extremist example of escapism, right? This person doesn't go out, doesn't see people, doesn't answer the phone, is scared when people knock on his door. And he lives, it seems like, his whole life through the, the escapism that is provided by these recordings of shows. Well, and not, and not only that, but the content of this show is this, like this uh, almost farcical love story where one person, you know, one couple comes to get married and by the end, four people get married. And we find out throughout the course of the play that this character has, you know, I don't, I don't really know hundred percent how long ago, but has gone through a, a broken love story um, that, that he, that, that, that he, he was married for a little while, but that it didn't work out. And he didn't really know the person by the time they got married and they lasted a very short amount of time and they, they, they broke it off. So, so not only is he kind of living, uh, or living not quite vicariously, but almost fantastically, um, in this world of outside of his, um, but also the, the content of that world is very outside of his experience. It's what he wished perhaps could have happened or just something that didn't happen to him. Yeah. Well, and I think it's certainly paid off this idea that he lives fantastically into the musicals, the way that the, the stage directions describe the musical ending. It doesn't, it, it doesn't really in, uh, it, it doesn't end with the man in the chair in our world, like in his real condition. The final stage direction is he's singing this sort of song. Uh, it's a reprise song about sort of making your way in life, stumbling around. In the original context, it's a song about being drunk, but of course it's reframed at the end of the play to be about sort of stumbling through life. He's singing it with the cast. And instead of the musical ending and him being left in his apartment alone, which is his reality, the final line is he says, goodbye, everybody and then this is the stage direction the man is flown into the flies he dips down to retrieve the record before disappearing yeah <laughs> that's that's an interesting note like like it's it's like that's an interpretive moment <laughs> like what mm -hmm. and it's one of those moments that i don't think the script really interprets for you um, so it's kind of there for the production company maybe to do it, but also leaving it in that sort of like unexplained leads for great, you know, opera theater, theater, opera theater conversation. <laughs> like, what do you think? It, what happened to him? What do you think he's doing? Um, uh, yeah, it's just it's a it's an interesting last moment for the journey we've been on with Man in the Chair. Yeah, and I, it, it's so the the musical you know it's i don't think it's trying to do i don't think it's trying to move the main character to some sort of big life revelation i, I that's yeah. just not the goal of this experience but in keeping that in mind it is interesting to think like what why are we watching this like what is the movement of the character what actually happens to what is frankly the real story of this musical which is the man in the chair and, and th this narrative structure is not just 
uh, you know, a funny character who stands off to the sides and offers us some thoughts. It's really the driving motif and the way that his world intersects into the musical changes the musical at times. There's moments where the record skips and like one of the most important lines in the play, you miss in the musical within the musical, you miss because the record skips and there's a whole thing about that. Scenes pause, scenes freeze. We learn all this context about the actors. It really, the musical establishes over and over that the man in the chair is what you're here to see. But it leaves you with this question of like, if that's the case, what happened? Like right. what not not what happened to him before the action of the play, but what happened in the action of the play? How did this character change? Have we experienced something alongside him? Yeah, yeah, it is a question because like there's the 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 the, the piece that I thought was kind of a, a there were two moments where I was like, ooh, maybe this is the change. There's the moment where he finally sings along with the musical, which happens quite late in the play. Um, but he joins joins in singing. Uh, I think you already talked about that. He kind of jumps in on a song um, that was originally about the drowsy chaperone being quite drunk, um, but but uh, kind of transforms into a philosophical life choice sort of thing. Um, so that's a moment. Um, I, and then the other one that 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 uh, is is a substantial change is the super showing up. The superintendent shows up. There's a power outage right at the the the, the climactic note of them flying off to Rio. Um, the power goes out, and it turns out that the superintendent is the person who's been calling the whole time, um, trying to let him know that they were going to be cutting the power and that th that they would have to come up and turn the breakers back on. And so that's what happens. The superintendent comes up, turns all the breakers back on, and you have this moment where the musical comes back on the last note rings out and the superintendent starts talking about musicals and that they're a fan of musicals and and that they're really interested in musicals they've seen a bunch of them and in and you have this moment of oh maybe this is a moment of connection or something like that but it doesn't turn out that way the man in the chair no. doesn't follow up with like yeah i love musicals too here's why he's like yeah that's nice whatever okay goodbye and the superintendent is shoved out of the room. So, so it, 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 there's these two moments in my mind of like, oh, this would be a turning point if this is our this is our protagonist's journey that don't really. I I agree with you that I don't think really lead towards the man in the chair has changed at the end of the play. Um, it's it's something has changed in our interaction with him, with him singing and with this new character coming on stage. But I don't know that it pays off necessarily in a big change for the character. Yeah, I mean, I think there's. You could maybe look at the final song that you described for moments of change. Like he, he's one of the people that sings the best we can do is hope a bluebird will sing his song as we stumble along. Like, does does he somehow realize that, uh, you know, hoping for things to get better is part of what, you know, is part of what is going to change whatever is going on with him, this sort of existential sadness that he's experiencing, uh, the, the, the loneliness and isolation that he's enforced on himself. Is there something there? Right before this big final song where he and the folks sing along and then he disappears into the flies there's a monologue it's just after the super is left where he's 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 thinking about starting the musical over and listening to it again yeah yeah and decides not to I, I don't know would you if you were trying to sort of interpret the story directorially and look for a moment of change and decision is that it where he decides not to listen through the drowsy chaperone again i don't know yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's uh, as as I was listening, to that, I had a similar thought. I was also like, he just said at the start of the play that he hates when plays go long. So like, is this like, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to try to kind of worm your way into Man in the Chair and try to. It's I imagine to be a fun character to try to make that decision for at the end of the play if you're the actor playing it or the director directing it. Um, yeah, what is what is the journey that Man in the Chair has gone on? Um, and is it? I mean, because if it's if it's not a journey necessarily. Then, then it's kind of a play about um, it's it's kind of a play about homages to what theater can do for someone because you have kind of the last spoken well except for the goodbye everybody one of the last spoken lines of the man is referring back again to um, it gives you a tune to carry with you in your head you know a little something to help you escape from the dreary horrors of the real world a little something for when you're feeling blue you know. Um, that's kind of the, the longer of his or the last of his longer lines. Um, and so you kind of have this 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 sense that like 
this was a way to engage a nostalgic piece of, of musical theater that helps a lot of people um, and, and helps to, to experience this sort, this sort of show in some way. And even though there's a lot of messiness in it, um, we, the, 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 the uh, road we've been on this character is him walking through, uh, walking us through how it helps him when he's feeling down, even though there's stuff that he doesn't like about it still. I'm interested, Jackson, in, in that final moment, too, because right in that same monologue, he also reveals something really interesting about uh, about theater, about the way he thinks about theater, about this show. He reveals that he's never seen the musical. Yeah. He is listening to a, a cast album. And, uh, you know, it's more than that because it's also all the dialogue and it's, it's you know, it's it's theatrical. And we just sort of accept that the whole musical is in these recordings and that somehow right. we're also able to see it. So, you know, all that gets messy if you think too hard about it, which is fine. But I, it's interesting to me that he reveals that he's never seen it. And I wonder what that does to our perception of what he's saying about the theater, because I mean, when we think about the theater as different than watching a movie musical or listening to a cast album, one of the things we think about is the liveness of it. The being in a room with, you know, 100, 200, 300, if you're at a Broadway show, 1,200, 2,000 other people. And while watching this thing together, right, there are steadies, your heartbeats start to align over the course of sharing the, those experiences together. You're in the same room as the characters who are going through this. But he, and that's, those are some of the things that you could wax poetic about, about how the theater changes you. Yeah. None of that he's experienced in terms of the musical that he's actually watching. He's just got this album that he listens to alone in his apartment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 definitely kind of a, an odd revelation at the end because he knows so much about it too. It's like something that he loves and is fixated on. He knows the he knows the history of the actors. He knows what other shows they did. He knows uh, why why he can't hear the pivotal line that the drowsy chaperone gives. Um, whether it's leaves or lives is because a cane dropped on stage and on the recording you can't hear <laughs> you can't o hear over hear it over the sound of the cane dropping. So he knows so much about it and yeah yet he's never never gone out and seen it never caught it anywhere um uh so so it is it is an interesting element to kind of attach more and more to this you know perhaps agoraphobia or or certainly fear of leaving and connecting with people from his apartment um and and how how that influences the way he's even able to engage this kind of fantastical world of theater yeah, agoraphobia certainly is one of the words that is thrown about uh, about the character. I'm not sure I see that as much um, as I do a character who's been consistently hurt by people. Like, I, uh, in, rather than it being a sort of neurological uh, fear that agoraphobia, you know, sort of diagnosable uh, anxiety disorder, uh, this is a person who uh, has been left by a spouse, who was left by a parent growing up. Um, you know, so I think who you, you could sort of, if you want to live into that, you sort of imagine uh, was bullied, was blah, blah, right? A lot of this kind of stuff that has made him, uh, that has left him afraid to be hurt again by other people. And that's really what I see when the super comes in, because you're right, it's a clear, I mean, the, the writing of the moment is so clear that's what's being offered is a friend who also loves musicals, right? He, he asked, was that a musical? What kind of musical? There was a musical. Do you like musicals? No. The man in the chair. Yeah. Of course, he's been screaming all, all show about how much he loves musicals. So <laughs> he's being offered somebody to make a connection with and he's, he won't do it. He's, he's, he's afraid to do it. He's been too hurt to do it. Um, and I, I, I don't know. It's interesting because I, I don't know if the music, the musical really offers a solution for the man in the chair to that, to that heartache except for uh you know put on a happy song <laughs> and i saw I, you know there's it's sort of a mystery to me the man in the chair is one of the great narrative characters ever uh but it it, it is sort of mysterious and and hard to interpret yeah, and le leaves plenty of room for conversation around that character and around other people's experience of him all all amidst a play that is just raucous 
Um, uh, like the rest, of, like we we've, we've dug in pretty far on Man in the Chair, but though like the, there's there's lots of great character work in the, in the, in the in the like large cast of people that is that is on stage as well. You have uh, the the actress Janet um, who is is trying to like. Her, she has the I want or I don't want song um, and and the kind of journey she goes on of like, I don't want to show off anymore. Um, but then second act is like, maybe I do. Maybe, maybe like, it's hard to choose between two things sometimes. Um, and, and just all this, all these like big group numbers around around uh, this wedding that's happening. Adolfo is just this crazy charismatic <laughs> goofy character based in a stereotype it's 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 interesting we we to, to, to kind of drive home and connect it to what we where we've been the the man in the chair aspect allows you to engage what could be a pretty pretty or it tends to be a pretty problematic era of musicals <laughs> of 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 this 1920s era of musicals a lot of uh gender stereotypes a lot of uh, uh cultural stereotypes are thrown around and because the man in the chair consistently comments on it, um, you're still you're still listening to the musical as it would be a 1920s musical with big numbers, lots of tap dancing, all sorts of stuff. Um, uh, with with the more uh, current cultural awareness, or at least a more cult current cultural awareness, with the character of the man in the chair talking into this this kind of crazy, uh, raucous play that is happening. Yeah, and I think Adolfo is a great example, right? Because you're totally right. It's a character. It's like the Latin lover character, right? Huge, yeah. big racial stereotype. Could be really offensive if you didn't understand, of course, that what the musical is doing is satirizing, really openly mocking, even criticizing that kind of stereotyping that, that existed for a whole period of, you know, for a long time and still does today for what, you know, for a lot. And, and, so what the man on the chair is able to do is pause the musical in places and offer commentary like this. This is what the man on the chair says about Adolfo. Mature contemporary audiences are too sophisticated, and I actually think he's still making fun of Broadway, but this is what he says. Mature contemporary audiences are too sophisticated to enjoy broad racial stereotypes on the stage. So we've banished them to Disney. Let the children sort it out. Yeah, woof. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is like 1990s Disney, so he's like, he's talking about like what you're thinking about. Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you you have that sort of perspective uh, thrown in there, all all amidst this like this kind of like. I, I, I was really drawn to the to the to the Janet and Robert love story because I think it's actually it's actually really interesting. <laughs> At least, like, uh, 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 Janet's story uh, th that she's kind of dealing with. Um, the Robert character is, is a delightful hunk that we don't really need to talk about too much. Um, he's blindfolded for a good <laughs> half of the play. A delightful <laughs> hunk. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Um, but you have Janet, who is this, like, uh, this, this, this uh, pretty, pretty successful uh, uh, show person. She, uh, she's, she's in a lot. The, the producer is there to try to get her to come back. She's grappling with uh, the decision to leave um, the love of many for the love of one um and especially for uh, the love of one that she's barely known for very long so there's lots of great um great songs for her to kind of have the i want or i don't want moment and the degree to which you decide to play the um the kind of campiness of the character i think adds for lots of really intricate choices um because you can go you could throw all the levers all the way and do this really campy kind of show show person show girl esque um, uh, performance, but there's actually another layer I think that is really, really um, uh, uh, deep and and valuable to hear about. Is this like love of love of the many? Do I trade the love of the many for the love of the one? And how am I? How can I possibly make that decision? Especially surrounded with all these questionable advice givers that I have around me <laughs> as I try <laughs> as I try to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, absolutely, and and it's. I, I'm not sure I've ever experienced the that part of the story as earnestly as that, but that's certainly a very 
earnest and, you know, uh, 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 trying to give as much empathy to the character as, as you can. And it, there's also, of course, this whole musical from the twenties. So of course to marry him, she also has to give up her career. Like, right. And right. That, that commentary <laughs> is made and mocked this idea that like, it's just a, a foregone conclusion in the musical from the fake musical from the twenties that if she marries him, she can no longer be a Broadway star. Of course, that's not true at all anymore. Certainly. Right. Uh, it, it's also got all of the hallmarks of big physical comedy, right? There's a whole spit take scene, which the man on the chair makes fun of. <laughs> but then there are some really, really good, uh, I think, uh, c- uh, really uh, classically uh, set up payoff kind of comic punchlines that are done through physicality that I think are evidence of pretty good writing and a really good comic imagination. One of the ones, for example, is the strings around George's finger. At the beginning of the of the musical within the musical, uh, George, the best man, has got a string tied around each of his fingers, which is a reminder of a task that he needs to accomplish over the course of the weekend. All the stuff that he needs to do to get the wedding ready. He actually seems a little more involved than best men, and as far as I'm aware, so maybe that's a a time. Terms of time, you know, changing difference. I don't know, or maybe it's just a feature of the musical. But he's got a lot to do, including like booking the minister is on the best yeah. man's agenda <laughs> for whatever reason, and that becomes the payoff at the very end of the musical. You've got four or five couples, however many offhand, are ready to get married, and they're they're got everything ready. They're gathering everything up, and the guy says, "And now here comes George." Says, "Here comes the pastor," and he holds his hand up, and he's still got one string tied to his finger, <laughs> and. I, I, everybody just goes, oh, no, because that was one of the five things he had to get done, and he's still got one string left. It's a really lovely sort of moment where comic sort of punchline, set, set up punchline, right? Setup was way early in the musical. Now at the way end, it pays off really well in a nice physical visual moment. Similarly, there's a blindfold scene, George blindfolds, George trying to get Robert to uh, not panic about having, uh, be, getting married. George, uh, Robert sings this whole song and George is like, well, that was dangerous. Let's put you on rollerblades and blindfold you. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> you can go, um, uh, you know, have some fun, blow off some steam that way. Just in case you ever run into uh, Janet while you're out there, you won't see her because you're blindfolded. Which is like a, a very goofy, farcical moment. He shoves him off stage blindfolded with the skates on. But then it comes back around because Janet is out in the garden trying to find Robert. And this whole scene transpires where Janet is able to, um, <laughs> only because Robert is a dope, um, <laughs> to impersonate this uh, French woman <laughs> um, and have this whole scene where they tell their original love story to each other. Um, but uh, she gets him to, to kiss her at the end but realizes that she he, he must think that she's a French woman and not her so it sets off the whole you know farcical spiral as a result of this like goofy moment where George th- throws a blindfold on Robert and shoves him off stage with skates on yeah well and of course it's not particularly uh, complicated plot writing, right? It's what the man in, in the chair says when the uh, when George and the drowsy chaperone say, okay, these two are not allowed to see each other on the wedding day. I think I said this earlier. And the man in the chair says, yes, folks, that's basically the whole plot. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> yeah, to that. Pay attention and of course it is because because Robert's not supposed to see her on his wedding day, he ends up blindfolded. And it's, you know, it's the same kind of basic premise of every wedding weekend sitcom you've ever seen. Uh, and But it works because... It because the experience of the show is not just that. We also have this a person watching it with us who's got a problem. Uh, and it's the problem of the man in the chair that makes the musical that has moments like that, which are not particularly complicated, but are just sort of, you know, uh, uh, they're almost nostalgic and comfortable because we're so familiar with that problem in, in kind of traditional comic writing that, that it becomes something else in context of the man in the chair way back when we did company on no script. I think we talked about like company, the the Sondheim musical only works if Bobby has a problem. Bobby can't just be hunky dory and have company work. Something's wrong. 
and and what Bobby encounters through his friends across the course of the musical help Bobby, whether it's man or woman now because of the great Broadway production on now, help Bobby deal with that. And I think the same is true for the man in the chair. Something's wrong. And the scenes like the blindfold scene in the garden are now re-understood in context of this problem, and we don't know what it is. And part of it maybe is that we get swept up in the story and forget about the man in the chair's problem along with him, and then are brought back in. I'm not, you know, however it works for you, but it, 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 I think that moments like that really illustrate what this musical is because that's such a familiar common moment but it's different in this show because it's illustrative of something that the man in the chair is going through different from like someone revealing their history you know you show sometimes you show up to a play um like you kind of get this with glass menagerie just a little bit with the 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 uh kind of main character steps forward at the beginning has this monologue about himself and and then you're like okay i'm going on the journey of your memory to learn how you came to where you are or something like that this is different this is like not you're not you're not going into my story you're going into this story that i love that i'm going to try to use to illustrate something about me that i can't really describe all on my own um, and and the, that, that sort of journey of the audience that the audience goes on of like, we slowly learn more about the man in the chair through the illustration of this play that the man in the chair loves is 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 a, is a, a, a great riff on the slowly revealing a secret uh, motif uh, that, that, that is often used in, in plays and in, and, and, and in theatrical experience. Yeah, and, and then there are uh, moments that are just designed to make you chuckle. I mean, the, the yeah. gangsters spit and, that, yeah, yeah. spit takes and the, the gangsters when they're threatening uh, the producer and they just, I think it's two pages in the script of pastry puns, one yep. after the other. <laughs> I mean, just nonstop pastry puns. It yep. just makes you chuckle because they come one after the other. And it's not actually each individual pun that works. It's the combination of them. It's sort of like the, oh my gosh, I can't believe there's another one. That becomes yep. so effective in making you chuckle. The other, the other like sleeper, really clever moment is Kitty getting uh, um, uh, Feldzig to marry her. Is just uh -huh. the, like just the, almost gets blown by in the script of this moment because <laughs> it's at the end of the play and so much is happening. But Feldzig finally puts Kitty up as the solve to the problem that the Bakers are going to kill him if he doesn't get Janet back into the thing. And it's all predicated on the fact that Kitty has to is a mind reader and that's the cool thing about her. So Kitty goes up and reads his mind and says. You want to marry me? And he has to say yes, because otherwise his lie doesn't work. <laughs> it's, it's just yeah, there, there's a lot of marriage trickery in this show, yeah, too. Yeah. The, the drowsy chaperone tricks Aldolfo into thinking that she's the bride, and so he seduces her. And then somewhere off stage, they decide to get married. And it seems like that's sort of against Adolfo's will. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> It's a it's it's a play full of little things like that, full of a great framework through which to engage them, and a great way to to like have uh, like we said, there's there's plenty in this play that leaves open for conversation, and and I've, we this has been a great great one. Alas, we're running down to the end of our time, um, but uh, we don't have to stop having the conversation, which is great. The uh, lovely part of this podcast is we get to extend the invite to have the conversation with all of you out there in podcast land. We do that via our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. If you've been in this play, been a part of this play, seen it, read it, listened to the music, um, we'd love to keep talking about The Drowsy Chaperone with you. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep the conversation going. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of our other now 10 seasons of episodes, please recommend us to your family, your friends. They can find us on Podbean, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and many other places where podcasts are published. You can also like us on Facebook and a link to the new episode will appear every Monday for you to click and play from there. So we're coming back with another one of theater's best scripts next week to have another unscripted conversation. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script. <laughs>